This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Seventh Journey, Book One. And the author is Robert J.R. Graham, and Robert joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Robert. Hi, Steve. Uh, Thanks for having me. Well, this is a credible, credible thriller here of credible imagination you have to put together such a, uh, well, it's... It seems to fit right into today's uh, modern technology and all the possibilities. Uh, You say this, uh, NetX, an advanced research firm with more than one secret agenda, has developed a mind-altering headset technology, which now poses a threat to all of humanity. The headset uses a mysterious sound wave called auditum that can control the brain and even hurls users into a different dimension. And, of course, we have the hero, the staff scientist, Jacob Cross, and he was heavily uh, involved in developing the new headset, and now he is in the middle of a, I guess, a a double world of conflict, right? A conflict, yeah, definitely, definitely. There's a conflict there, and um, he's uh, kind of been wrapped up in this uh, this adventure that he didn't really expect to have happen. Um, when he kind of started working with uh, NetX and the Auditum technology, he was kind of brought in under the auspices that it was really there to kind of help people and heal people, and you know, use kind of meditative states and different states of the brain to kind of you know induce healing. Um, but later, as he found out that, uh, you know, through some involvement with his friends and so forth, as, this, as the plot progresses, um, it was actually designed for much more than that and potentially to enslave humanity. So that's something that uh, goes against his moral character. So he basically tried to take that technology and figure it out on his own before someone else got the better of him. So how did you come up with this great storyline? Well, it comes from actually years of... Um, doing a lot of different readings and research into, you know, stories that I found helpful throughout the years, um, you know, things that are either touching on different dimensions or, you know, touching on, you know, different philosophies and, and things of that nature. And uh, when I decided to actually sit down and write something, a lot of that came as um, uh, fuel, I guess you could say, for the creativity. Uh, a lot of, lot of great uh, authors that I've, um, you know, kind of, worked with or, or at least I've kind of used their their kind of methodologies and, and so forth as, as inspiration for my own so um, and a lot of personal experiences as well have kind of you know helped to, to bring together the seventh journey. So this new technology can literally send a person through a dimensional portal. It does yeah so it, it doesn't happen, you know, kind of right away. I mean, you'll you'll see it in the book. It does it does happen kind of early on the first few chapters. But there's actually other things that start happening to the users of this technology, um, and I kind of get into that a lot more as the series progresses. Um, but uh, in the first book, you definitely kind of start seeing what happens to the to the main character and, and you know what this technology starts doing to him. Um, one of the main things that you start seeing is that um, he's able to see these multiple dots, or like, you know, what I would explain as little dots, microscopic dots everywhere. And that's right away one of the first um, side effects that he starts experiencing. There's a lot of other kind of metaphysical side effects in your, your standard kind of telepathy and things like that. As his brain starts to change, a lot of these experiences start happening to him. And finally, he's actually hurled into a different dimension um, after using the technology. And then that's where you start getting the double storyline. And his company, NetX, he finds out that there's a whole lot more going on with the CEO than, than uh, obviously, what appears on the surface. Yeah, definitely. Um, the, the, the antagonists I've kind of used in the story are 
Um, I, I think probably one of the more interesting aspects of the story with uh, the CEO, Edward Aden, um, and uh, his kind of involvement in how he's been, you know, utilized to bring audit into the world and also the kind of the mysterious force that's been guiding him, whether he realizes it or not, kind of throughout the story um, and kind of things where, where things end up. But it's, you know, just as, you know, the character, the main character has to go through multiple dimensions, I've tried to make many of the characters multidimensional as well. So this unknown, uh, well, if this force be behind the CEO at NetX, uh, what is his name again? Uh, so the character's name is Lou Siege. Lou Siege, okay. He's the adversary from the other dimension. That's correct, yeah. And so his goal, what is his goal, ultimate goal? Well, uh, that's, kind of re- that's kind of revealed throughout the story, but um, I kind of bring it about in an interesting sort of way. There's, there's also a subgroup um, in, in the Seventh Journey called the Arabian. And this is a fictional uh, group that I've kind of based off of a, a Sufi, which is a, a religious uh, kind of sect, a Sufi group. And they're kind of the holders of these prophecies. And, uh, you know, these prophecies that they're holding are basically, you know, an epic battle between, you know, good and evil. And the evil aspect that, that uh, embodies in the story is this Lucige character. And uh, the main character, Jacob, as he's able to actually go into these different dimensions, once he goes into the other dimension and meets the guide uh, in the story that kind of helps him along the way, and her name is Tamara, um, she introduces him to Lucige and kind of what his role is and how he's been kind of working towards or how Lucige has been actually taking over her dimension, and now that the portal has been opened through Jacob's world, he's actually going to try to get in there as well. And he's got a lot of training. He's going to need a lot of training. Uh, Jacob would, yes. 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 Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of um, uh, kind of subplot there in terms of personal growth. So the main character, you know, he might start off, you know, rather kind of insecure or... Um, you know, not really sure about what's going on. And there's a lot of confusion with him. And, that, you know, you might get that as you're reading the story because, you know, he's not sure if this is actually real or not himself. But um, as things progress, he starts to become more self-assured and, and secure. And, um, you know, you start seeing his personal growth um, throughout the story. And, you know, it's that personal growth that's actually really key for him to be able to take on this adversary. And this love story, is that a dominant theme? Yeah, it definitely is. Um, I would say the theme is there throughout. There, there's a bit of a love triangle that happens in the story as well. As you know, Jacob doesn't start off single in the book. He does have a, you know, an existing love interest. But um, much like other aspects in his, you know, we'll call it physical world or real world uh, life, um, a lot of those aspects start to break down. Um, as he progresses further into the other dimension. So, you know, his, his main relationship starts to crumble and you start to see, you know, what's going on with that and why. Um, but, um, you know, and, and this, similarly with his other friends as well, they're kind of connected to his, his real-world life. Um, those things start to break down. Um, and as he picks up and starts to believe more in this other dimension. And so that other, so that love theme does kind of, um, you know, continue throughout and, We'll continue into the next uh, couple books in the series as well. And kind of a side note, uh, Tamara, uh, would she be considered the heroine of the story? Uh, definitely. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting how I've, I think, how I've, I've done it because, you know, as, these, as the main character is kind of insecure, uh, Tamara is really the, the character that embodies most of the aspects that he would need to have in order to take on this adversary. So she is really confident. You know, she is really wise. You know, she does really understand what's happening between these, these different dimensions and, and what needs to be done. Um, and it's really him trying to work his way into alignment with, you know, her state of being and, and where she's at with her confidence levels. And, uh, you know, as he progresses towards that, you start to see the hero rise in the story. And you created Tamara months before you met your wife, and her name is? Her name is Tamara, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Interesting how these coincidences <laughs> yeah. kind of happen, right? Well, or, you know, maybe it's just one of those multidimensional things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, you certainly have an interesting background. Uh, as you say, your curiosity about, you know, little things like quantum physics, uh, Eastern mysticism, Western psychology, ancient philosophies, martial arts. I guess all of that all rolled together. Uh, presto, we have Seventh Journey. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it's, it, it might have been a bit of an ambitious uh, book to put all that in there, but I don't think it's it's really prominent. I think there's hints of those aspects in it um, as the main story is told. Um, you know, Seventh Journey was really, you know, the, the real primary focus I wanted to kind of put into that book was, or this series, was really the multidimensional aspect of it. And all of those other things that I've kind of been exposed to throughout my own life, you know, aid to kind of tell the story and to explain why these things are, you know, potentially possible. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, my, my youth um, was probably a little bit more serious than others. But, um, you know, everyone has their aptitudes, and, you know, some people really got into, um, you know, sports or, or different things. And, you know, I really got into computers really early, and um, I got into researching things on the Internet really early. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just kind of where I've ended up. But um, it's uh, it certainly helped me to uh, craft um, stories and, and so forth uh, with some, some depth. And this is going to become really more of a saga because how many more books do you envision? Uh, well, at least uh, I at least have the next two already, you know, uh, written out in terms of structure, in terms of high-level points of uh, what's going to occur. Um, but I'd like to take the series as far as uh, seven books if I can. Well, the people in this other dimension, as you put it, have amazing powers like telepathy, flight, and light speed travel. They can create anything with their thoughts, and that's just the beginning. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, you know, I really want to take the other dimension and, and change what I would call the physics in it. Um, you know, having been a, a researcher of quantum physics and material sciences, you know, a lot of the things that we seem to be really interested in, you know, uh, these days around superheroes and so forth are people that seem to not be bound by the physics of our universe, right? You know, incredible strength, um, all these kinds of things. Um, well, I really wanted to kind of take that to an extreme uh, in the seventh journey and um, really have people um, with uh, this kind of energy-bending ability that I've kind of created, um, which is essentially utilizing your thoughts and, uh, you know, creating um, objects or energy weapons out of, out of nothing, uh, just, uh, just the power of your thoughts. And, you know, I'm, I'm really kind of taking that and trying to evolve that as, as the series progresses. But, uh, yeah, I definitely think that's one of the unique elements. This character, his counterpart, Lukeman? Lukeman, yeah. And that's in this dream world that he... It is, This yeah. other dimension. And mm -hmm. does, is, does he realize uh, who he is in the other dimension? Or is there a, some kind of a connection with uh, understanding that he goes back and forth? Well, the thing is uh, with, with the character and what I tried to uh, portray was you know, that it's, it's kind of like you're arriving to the party late and everyone's been expecting you, and you're not really sure why. <laughs> so, you know, you know, he kind of comes off as, uh, as this character, well, you know, I, I'm just an everyday average Joe, and um, I created this headset, and I worked for this company, and all of a sudden I'm wrapped, in, you know, wrapped up into something a lot bigger than he is. Um, and, and that's kind of how I've, um, you know, enabled him to be this other Lukeman character, which is, you know, essentially... They've been, everyone in the other dimension has been waiting for his arrival. You know, he, he's not even sure what, if, this, if any of this is real at all, um, or if this is just some figment of his imagination. But as he arrives in the other dimension, people are heralding his arrival, you know, and, uh, and are, are, you know, um, very hopeful that he's now arrived because, you know, he happens to be the one that they believe can help them. Um, so, you know, he's not really sure if he is Luke Mon or if any of that is real, but, you know, at, at some point he has to make a decision as to, you know, whether or not he wants to progress down that path or not. And this is his journey towards mastery. It is, yeah. Um, that's kind of the, you know, the, the hero's journey or, or the, you know, one of the, the main kind of plots points is, um, you know, he comes from... Uh, you know, being a fairly, you know, as I say, uh, an average guy, he has a, you know, a job in the science research field. Um, but, uh, you know, he's 
a standard kind of guy who's been, you know, educated and has a job and, you know, he doesn't really necessarily think that there needs to be anything more than that. Um, but as he comes to understand, there is a lot more than that and he does have to, um, you know, really kind of evolve or grow to the, the highest um, the highest aspect or the highest version of himself that he could possibly be in order to take on this adversary. And that, that's kind of where this personal mastery kind of idea comes in. You have used, as you put it, a mixture of truth and fantasy, but you've also got this uh, side to it, these antidotes uh, that are scattered throughout, which depict a more spiritual side of the uh, uh, Arabic culture. Yeah, this is true. Um, you know, I think throughout history, it, there, there's always um, there's always been, you know, let's say the villain, or there's always been the culture that um, you know perhaps uh, you know we've we've um, been looking at in, in slightly negative light. And I know, of course, since um, you know political reasonings over the last ten or fifteen years. We happen to be looking at perhaps the Arabic culture in that negative light for whatever reason, and you know, obvious reasons are there for that. Um, but I, you know, just like in every culture, I know that there are positives and negatives, and I and I want to kind of research. You know, what are the what are the more kind of spiritual, or what are the what are the more, kind of more positive aspects of of these cultures that are you know um, that are of a similar thread to all other cultures, and. Um, that's kind of what I want to focus on. So I did take a fictitious group and created them in my story and used them as the harbinger or the messenger of certain pieces of information throughout um, holders of prophecies and, and uh, also aiding and training at certain points. Uh, but yeah, there is definitely a lot of uh, research there in terms of um, those cultures. It's an epic adventure. The title is Seventh Journey, book one, and the author is Robert J.R. Graham. Robert, tell us how to get your book. Well, the book right now is, uh, is available on your major uh, retailer websites and uh, in stores as well. So there's uh, Amazon.com, uh, Barnes & Noble. Uh, you can also get it at uh, chapters.ca um, for uh, the Canadians. Um, and uh, also you can uh, just grab, uh, grab it from my website, which is www.robertjrgrand.com. And uh, over there, there's links to uh, all the availability locations. Well, thank you so much, Robert, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Oh, thanks very much. It was a real pleasure. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Ready for the most current feel-good gossip? Then check out Daytime with Donna with your host, Donna Intercastle, and sidekick Nina Fry. Every Friday afternoon at 2, 1 Central on toginet.com. Donna is a charismatic, market-driven entrepreneur who was part of the team that founded iVillage.com, which is the largest content-driven community for women today. Donna and Nina are here to empower you, motivate you, and encourage you in all aspects of your life. It's like Oprah on the radio. Plus, your chance to win great prizes, all the way up to a $500 Visa gift card. For more on Donna Intracasso, check out her website, introinc.com. Then join us for the show, Daytime with Donna, with your host, Donna Intracasso, and sidekick Nina Fry. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Viktor Frankl, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. 
Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Taken Land. And the author is Robin O'Reilly, and Rob joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Rob. Yeah, good morning. How are you, Steve? Well, you're talking to us tomorrow. (laughs) That's right. From New Zealand, uh, since uh, how many hours difference between us? 17, is it? Uh, uh, Yes, I think there's around about 17, 18 hours difference. Yeah. Well, great to have you with us. Uh, I mentioned the title, The Taken Land, but it's also on the title page in Maori. Give us that in in Maori. How do you pronounce that? It's Rido Te Whenua. Thank you. So you have to roll the R's. Roll the R's. <laughs> well, Rob, I'm going to read what you've written just to kind of set the stage for our discussion about your book. You say this, When their lives turn sour, a group of young New Zealand Maori illegally stake a claim on a small block of land and become embroiled in murder when police and the army get involved. Now, this is a historical novel, obviously based on fact. Uh, why did you write this? Uh, what, what's the purpose in this storyline? Uh, um, yes, it's a subject that's been debated um, yes, across the country you know, every week. You know, and there's, you know, it's on talkback radio, it's on the TV, um, it's in documentaries. And I just thought it's a topic that's popular. Um, um, yes, it's to a point that people are interested um, with the outcome, so I thought I would write a fictional story based on a bit of historical fact. So this is a, uh, a book that you say you haven't seen uh, anything else written by a New Zealander where the Maori have actually made an illegal claim uh, because uh, I guess that is, uh, I guess the Maori believe that the government trying to take their land illegally. Yeah, well, um, yes, in some cases, yeah, there was quite a bit of land was, yeah, was confiscated. Uh, um, it was during the Maori Wars, there was some of the tribes sort of resisted quite strongly. And, and it was after the wars, yeah, yeah, so when the government, uh, um, uh, yes, yes, it had a lot of immigrants coming in from, uh, yes, was, uh, was from the UK, they needed land to actually settle on, yes, to become farmers. Yeah, because most of them come from farming background. And of course, a lot of Maori tribes didn't want to sell their land. So those who resisted during the war, they were the ones who were targeted first. And if they didn't sell the land, well, they confiscated it anyway. Yeah, and that's how um, we're sort of in the predicament today, where um, we're having to compensate those tribes that had the land illegally taken. So we're, here we have in uh, New Zealand, in South Auckland, uh, Manny and his wife, Joe. they think that they have it made, and then the economy turns bad, and he sees an opportunity, doesn't he? That's right, yes. And tell us about that. What, what's his, you know, his line of thinking? Um, well, he's really... Um yeah, yeah, we started off, um, you know, his working life as a carpenter, and he was actually doing quite well, and his wife had a good job, uh, you know, was working in the office. And you know, then when Wall Street crashed, and you know, the world economies went into, um, um, you know, everyone took a real dive with economy-wise, um, uh, 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 his nanny got laid off, and they were on the dole. Um, uh, yeah, was for quite a while, and yeah, they just got sick and tired of being on the dole. Uh, I guess it's sort of dependent on the government, um, da da da. And yeah, so he decided, yeah, because he was a bit of a radical in the first place. So he decided to um, get a group of people together, and they would go and stake a claim on land and actually live off the land. Yeah, and this place where they went, yeah, I've actually been there, uh, and. Um, uh, yeah, yes, it's very isolated, and uh, um, yeah, there's only the old hunter goes in there. Uh, yeah, and I thought that would be a good place for them to sort of set up camp and just live off the land. So he he reclaimed some land in a national park. That's right. Yes. Which yes, had... and the national park was actually part of his tribe that was actually um, illegally taken by the government back in the late 1880s. 
So this is done by Manny and some others. Uh, yes. you, you call them a small, disillusioned group of young Maori. That's right. Why are they yes, so disillusioned? With what? Uh, yeah, because they were on the dole. Um, yeah, they were struggling yeah, with paying the rent and all, that, yeah, um, yeah, all the usual uh, yeah, the problems you have when you're, yeah, yes, when you're on a very minimal income. And um, so that's when they decide they, they're going to head for the bush, as it were. <laughs> right. And, and, and part of it, too, in a protest against the government. Yeah, yes, yes, exactly. So they're, they're hoping for uh, freedom and peace and prosperity. At least they can uh, make it on their own and, and kind of control their own destiny. That's right, yes. Yes, and they do for a while as well. But then tragedy strikes. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit, without giving everything away, what's this tragedy? Um, yeah, there's three young hunters come in there, um, yes, into this block, and yeah, they come across Manny's camp, and um, yes, his Manny's wife is up at the, yes, they've got a big vegetable garden up in the clearing in the bush, and she sees these three um, people stalking around their this camp, so she decides to... Um, um, Yes, to attack them and yes, to try and expose them to their group. But um, um, yes, she gets pushed off. Yes, she tackles the guy and yes, he sort of fends her off and she accidentally breaks her neck and um, he consequently dies, which really, um, it really upsets Manny and so he goes after them. Well, that's, uh, we, I'm sure we can all uh, relate to that. That would be uh, probably a revenge in his mind. Yes, exactly. You know, plus, he also, um, you know, he's got a real gripe against white people as well. Right, so it's, it turns into a racial issue as well. That's right, yes. Well, you you want your you want the readers to really realize how realistic and feasible this storyline is. Yes, because you've done a lot of research, and you know these. Uh, I guess the big question is: are are these confiscations uh, are they valid or legal? Yes, they are. There's a lot of them. Are some of them? Some of them aren't. Um, yeah, and there's been millions and millions of dollars. Yes, it's paid out over the years in compensation. Um, yeah, and also some of the tribes aren't satisfied with yeah, with what they got. They um, they sort of think it wasn't enough, yeah, and they're sort of asking for more. Um, yes, yeah, so, so there's a lot of sort of um, un- unhappy people out there, and yeah, and it's mostly um, ones who are on the dole. You know, today, you know, the, you know, that have got got agreements against the government. So this happened all the way. It started all the way back in the mid eighteen hundreds. Yes, that's right. Yes, um, but it's actually a story that actually could happen today. Just if someone took the initiative and actually got a group of guys together, it wouldn't be too hard. Because you know, you know, there's lots of big blocks of land around the place where, um, you know, there's just bushes. You know, it's too hard to access for logging and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, so there's lots and lots of places around where these guys could do it. You know, and you know, in a story, that actually could relate to anywhere in the world, really, with someone who's got a gripe against the government, as it were. So you tried to put yourself into the shoes of each character to feel and act as they would. That's right, yes. Yeah, and I think I've done it reasonably well. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, there's a lot of emotion and um, just passion you know, in the story as well. Right, a lot of action too. Yes, yes. Right. So this, the of course, the, we're not going to talk about the uh, climatic ending, but I think pe- people can all feel the tension and the seriousness of the storyline, and of course, uh, Manny. Uh, because of the death of his wife, has got to be just enraged. Yes. Yes, and, he'll, and, and of course they had the barrier on that land, which makes it really significant to him, because yeah, he's not going to move off that land without a huge battle, you know. Right, right. Uh, yeah, and that's, that's what happens. So we 
obviously must have the government involved here. Yes. Yes. So, well, let's see. Rob, what are some of the other things, uh, what are some of the other characters that play an important role in your story? Um, yes, John Armour here. Um, that's his, his great-grandfather was the, um, he was the paramount chief of the tribe. <laughs> that was when this land was going to be confiscated just from his tribe, which, which you know, now is it's called the Tongariro National Park, which is one of the huge um, um, uh, yes, national parks in you know, New Zealand. And I believe it's, it, it was, uh, yes, at one stage, it was going to be called the eighth wonder of the world. Um, yes, yes, it's a beautiful place. You have the three mountains on it, um, and, you know, and it's a major tourist attraction, yes, especially during the winter months, you know, you know, because of skiing and that sort of stuff. And now there's, there's a big, big cycling um, trail that sort of runs just partly through it, you know, and it's becoming very popular. Well, as we pointed out, Manny uh, doesn't handle things well at all, and one of your themes and we'll, uh, I don't know if you can comment on this, because, uh, of course, we won't give the details. But as you say, murder is not a way to achieve an end. It will, in the end, destroy you. Yes, yeah, and as it did with, um, yes, as many, because he basically went insane uh, yep, in the end. Yes. Well, it's a historical novel, obviously based on fact and... It has uh, quite a storyline, uh, a, a lot of uh, adventure in it, a lot of intrigue, uh, and, and in the end, murder. So, Rob, any closing thoughts? Um, no, not, not really. Yeah, this is the first time I've actually done an interview, and um, maybe I'll be better next time with my next book. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like a... Uh, kind of the book you can't put down, The Taken Land, and the author is Robin O'Reilly. Uh, Rob, tell us how to get your book. Um, at, yes, at the moment, you, yeah, you can buy it online at um, Barnes & Noble or on Amazon, or if it can be purchased through iUniverse well, thank as you, well. Thank you so much, Rob, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Yes, yes, thank you very much for having me. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Show me the money! Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Hey moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamamanyhats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Big Picture, Insights from the Spiritual World. 
And the author is Gary Gilfoy. And Gary joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Gary. Good morning, Steve. All the way from South Australia. We appreciate you being with us. It's a pleasure. Let me read a couple things you've written about your book, The Big Picture. You say this. This is a book about ordinary people who have had extraordinary experiences of the spiritual kind. It's rich in detail, and it brings in plenty of the wisdom of the ages and a few modern sages to pull together a coherent worldview in an intelligent and sensible way. It has something for everyone, whether you're interested in theology, psychology, spirituality, or just like to read about people's amazing experiences. So we've got some of your personal experiences in here, and we've also got some others who you share their stories. Why do this, Gary? What, what's, what is the, the motivation? And, uh, and I guess at the same time, why don't you begin with a little bit about yourself and then why you wrote the book? Okay, and those two questions, of course, tie together very nicely. Um, so my my earliest experiences around spirituality, which you know the opening the opening chapter in that book is called Quest. So you know the threads that we live by, and mine has been around spirituality. My mother was a well to call it clairvoyant is it probably sounds a little bit intentional. She had a, a a gift of what we'd call second sight in those days. So she would see people who had died or. She'd know when people were going to die, and know when things were going to happen. And uh, so this was my earliest experience of reality, really, because she was an honest Christian woman, and I had no reason to doubt her. And I wondered why, what does this mean, you know, that we can exist apart from our physical body? So that, that became my quest, and this was, I grew up in Canada, so that was, you know, at, I reached maturity during the time of sort of New Age spirituality in the West, and so there was lots to choose from. You know, I was reading the, the mystics, Edgar Casey and Ruth Montgomery, people like that from a very early age, and putting together a worldview that made sense to me. Um, and then, as you read in the book, at the age of 16, I had an out-of-body experience. And so I, I had proof for the first time that, that A, our consciousness exists apart from our body, and, and B, that that's more a natural state. That was a fantastic, blissful experience, as people describe um, as they read. Now, your, your opening question about why I tell these stories about other people, I, I suppose, I, you know, I, I don't want to see this kind of experience as something for the kooky fringe, and I know a lot of people do see that, but the people whose stories you read in the book, they are, you know, just ordinary people, as you say, who've had extraordinary experiences, which live with them all their lives. And the more people that I met who had these experiences, the more I felt I had to tell these stories. Because these are life-altering experiences, right? Like you had when you were 21. That's right. The, the 21 experience was a big one. If you, if you were to do research on spiritual experiences, and there's plenty on it, you know, there, there are different levels of spiritual experience. So lots of people talk about you know, intuitions and knowings and, you know, just about to pick up the phone to call somebody who rings them. You know, that's, uh, you know, that's a great spiritual experience. Out-of-body experiences aren't uncommon either. So people who've had car accidents or on operating tables, lots of people report out-of-body experiences. And then we have what's called the noetic experience. So noetic means knowledge of spiritual realities. And, and so, you know, research shows that 4 to 6% of people have noetic experiences. So an experience of the spiritual world where you, you experience something that you bring back as knowledge so it doesn't slip away from you. Um, and for those people, that kind of experience represents the cornerstone of their lives. We all have a lot of dreams. Most of them we can't remember. But once in a while we have a dream that we can remember precisely as is is this something that uh, you uh, talk about and it's important to us? Um, I, I don't go into it so much in the book, but I think it is important. I think people know when dreams are important. I did go through a, a stage probably in my early 20s or late teens when I used to record dreams. And when you set up to intentionally record dreams, you'll remember. You'll even wake up to write them down. I think we know when dreams are important. I think many of them... Uh, you know, the, the psychologists would say that many dreams are just a, a uh, function of the unconscious and 
and don't have particular meanings. But then there are those dreams that we know have meanings. You know, if you're riding the crest of a, a wave, at the crest of a wave in a sort of blissful knowledge state, you know something's coming, really. Your book revels in the big picture, as you say. Uh, unlike many books which cover spirituality, the disciplines of psychology and theology are used intelligently to anchor matters of the spirit. Now explain that statement to us. Well, you know, I did have a degree in theology. Actually, I have four university degrees. My first one was in business, believe it or not. Uh, and then I did a theology degree. And look, I, I did that. I used to hold management positions in organizations. So I be, became a de facto counselor in a way. Later, I became an actual counselor. But what I realized in, in helping people who work through things is that there was a lot of stuff, you know, that comes from our Judeo-Christian background that is really unprocessed and, and misunderstood, I think, about, you know, the things we should do and shouldn't do. So the, the Judeo-Christian basis for our laws and therefore our conscience or our, our guilt, I suppose, conscience is, is a little more real than guilt, I think. Um, and so the, the theology, I need to understand, I need to be able to argue with people about the stuff that they believe. And of course, now that I've done that study, I realize we talk about faulty thinking and irrational thoughts and all those sort of things. Um, so I went on from there later to do a master in counseling degree, um, and that, that brought in the psychology. Well, actually, I, because of my own interest in spirituality, um, personal development, of course, was at the core of my my pursuits. Um, and then to do a master in counseling, I really got the psychology thing. So a lot of spirituality is divorced from psychology. It you know, remains a bit airy-fairy. And that kind of stuff, it doesn't fit very well with me, Steve. I, I like to make sense of things. Mm -hmm. uh, so between psychology, theology, and spirituality, I think I've drawn together a really... Uh, comprehensive and understandable and relevant uh, book for people. You focus on extraordinary stories of seven people, as we've already pointed out, who have uh, been unwitting visitors to the spiritual world. Now, uh, let's talk about, give us some examples. Let's see, uh, of course, there's Joy and Trish and Helen and Keeley, uh, who, who, and there's some others. Who would you like to uh, give us, just give us uh, an example, a couple uh, of examples. Okay, um, let's go for Keeley. Okay. He's an American, so many of your listeners uh, would relate. Right. Actually, interestingly, I knew all of these people only prior to writing this book. I'd written an article on peak experiences and and one of these seven people, I'm, of course, one of those people. And mm -hmm. uh, so my 21-year-old experience, which I just skirted around, was one of those experiences which had, you know, profound impact, as you alluded to, because it came with that knowledge um, of uh, being an incarnating being and the experience of being a spiritual being. So all of these people have a similar experience. When I say unwittingly, they, they were the result of accidents, or in one case, Lucas, it was drugs, but then it went on for years and years um, as a reality of being connected to the spiritual world. Um, but for all of these other people, so mine was in meditation, these other people, it happened upon them, it would seem. Um, and so let's, let's pick Keely, who is a young American. She's still about 20, maybe 24 now. She was about 20, I can't remember, 2021 at the time. Her family had moved here from America to work on the east coast of Australia. She was going to go to university in Queensland and, um, and lived a couple of hours from the university, so would board there. But in the meantime, before starting, because the school years are six months apart, she had time to kill, really. So she lived in this, this uh, little town, and she formed this connection with this man who worked at a cafe, she also had her American boyfriend with her, so it was a relationship that didn't go anywhere, but it was a very strong connection, and she was uh, very attractive. Now, her boyfriend went back to America, and, um, and Keita started university, but she would make sure she saw this guy every weekend at his cafe. Again, they weren't dating or anything. And then at one point, he was no longer there, and she didn't understand, you know, what he'd left, what was going on for him. Um, but anyway, on another trip back to Byron Bay from, from uh, Brisbane, she, she stood, she pulled off on, on a, you know, little thing on the side of the road just to have a break. 
and she had this flash in front of her of, of an accident, um, and this sh- figure shrouded with a, a cowl around his face, uh, a dark figure, who did this really quick gesture, but it was a very poignant gest- gesture. And, you know, it was quite a, an eerie experience for her. Now, that was the same trip. When she got home that time, her mother had found out that this young man she was very attracted to had died of a brain aneurysm. And she was very devastated by that. Um, but, you know, she, she pulled her life together a bit. So, and then it was some weeks or maybe a couple of months later um, when she was driving home again from university for the weekend missed her bypass, which her, her turn off, which she said was extremely unusual because she'd done it so many times. And she, she ended up going up this very long hill past her bypass, which is another reason it was so obvious. She looked, both, it was dark. She clearly looked both ways, did a turn and got uh, T-boned, as we call it here in Australia, smashed into very severely. Um, you know, only barely survived this accident. There was just the tiniest bit of space for her to be in. Um, and, you know, talks about there was a lady there. So she was in and out of her body there, but not with the awareness that would come later. Um, so she was airlifted to hospital. It took her several hours to get her out of the car, you know, one of those things. Airlifted to hospital. Her parents were phoned and said she's going to go out of time and so on. Um, but anyway, she she survived that. She had a, a bit of internal damage. I think her uh, punctured lung was the the most urgent thing, but her pelvis was uh, uh, pretty uh, shattered. Um, she, anyway, so they were certain she would never walk again at the best, but it you know, took some days to keep her, keep her alive. But while she was recovering, she had this experience. She went into this space and she saw what had happened that night from a spiritual point of view. And so she saw this car being, she said it was almost, it was being dragged up this long hill. Um, and there was this, this figure at the top of the hill who was the young man that she had known from the cafe. And, um, but he, re- he was watching over her. She calls him the watcher now. He was watching over her. She, he realized he wasn't strong enough spiritually to save her. So, and then he did that movement of the arm, which she had seen. He called in another spiritual being. She saw the accident, and she saw this being come into the car and put, put their hand up against the front of the car to ward it off from crushing her to death. Um, so it was, it was, you can imagine it was quite a, quite mm, a revelation right. for her. And, of course, it, it was one of those things that completely altered the way that she understood life and how near to us the spiritual world is. And she feels that... She feels her, the man, the watcher, the, the young fellow, she said he moved on, but someone else is replaced, and she still feels the watcher there. The year 2012, to, uh, to many spiritualists, is a big year. Uh, what do you yes. think will happen? What do you expect? You know, I don't think much is going to happen. Uh, well, uh, you know, this is another thread of the book. When we talk about the big picture... Um, you know, the core to understanding the big picture is to understand the purpose of human development. So lots of people talk about humans being co-creators, but what does that mean? So in the, in the big picture, the biggest picture, why does humanity exist? Humanity exists to bring about freedom. It's the development of freedom for the cosmos that we're all about, and that's what our, our um, creation myth is about. You see that at the garden at the beginning of our creation myth when we choose to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So the rest of our evolution is about the development of freedom. Now, when things happen like 2012 is coming, it's going to be a big shift. Some of us will perish and some of us will be enlightened. I just have my issues with that. You know, we've, we've got to do the work that brings about our development. We need to make choices. We need to make choices based on morality. We need to take responsibility. It's not going to just happen in a flash. I know that won't make me very popular with 2012ists, but there you go. <laughs> well, a closing thought about fear. Uh, you embrace fear. Why is that? Well, this was, you know, some of my earliest work then as a psychotherapist, you know, I, I set up a practice particularly for people in midlife because people in midlife get stuck. Uh, that's, the, that's the lament. And when we're stuck, it's actually fear that keeps us stuck. So, you know, it's doubt that inhibits our thinking. 
Um, it's anger and hatred that inhibit our emotional lives. Well, it's fear that inhibits our will, our ability to move. Um, but what I realized is, you know, this book goes into karma, reincarnation. I, you know, I'm a past life regressionist, as you've probably read. Um, now, what we do is we bring stuff with us to work on from the past, but we actually need a trigger in this lifetime to keep it alive in us. So when we come to maturity, we can process that. So, for example, if I have a fear of rejection, which is my core fear, again, I go into my story that I was an unwanted child, um, now, when I penetrate past lives, I realize that, that the, the shame and not feeling good enough and so on that accompanied me in this lifetime wasn't because I was an unwanted child in this lifetime. It comes from the past. Again, I share a couple of past life stories in that book. But there was a trigger in this lifetime to bring it alive so that I could work on it because that's partly what I'm here for. Um, and it's our fears. It's our fears that are triggered in early life that has us segregate off different aspects of our being, and we don't go there. Now, if we spend a whole lifetime not going there, we're not going to develop. But as our you know, mind, our consciousness turns towards these things in later life, and we can see the restrictions that, that come at us around these areas of fear, we can either choose to take them on or not. You know, a comfortable life is a nice thing. I would say that a life of personal development is really enriching and sustaining. Um, so that's why I embrace fear, because it's the, the seat of our greatest learning. The author is Gary Gilfoy, and he is the writer of his book, The Big Picture, Insights from the Spiritual World. Gary, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's, it's available through all of the uh, major online booksellers, so... Book Depository, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Um, yeah, I have a website you can buy it through, but if you're in the U.S., you don't want to do that because of the shipping expenses. Um, and hopefully, it'll, it, it just came out in January, but hopefully it'll filter down to the bookshops. Thank you, Gary, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you very much, Steve. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.